What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Uri Nisi. He's a behavioral economist, a professor at the University of California, and an author whose research focuses on human incentives. Incentives encourage humans to do things, but they're not as straightforward as you might think. They often have unintended and disastrous consequences for our personal lives, business, and societies. Basically, a bad incentive is worse than no incentive at all. Expect to learn why paying citizens 10 pence for a rat tail is a bad idea, how fining parents for taking their kids on holiday results in more kids missing school, why the Toyota Prius won because of its strange design, how reframing discounts can rapidly change behavior, why Peloton sales went up when they increased the price, why Coke machines have an outdoor thermometer on them, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gymproof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout but now ladies and gentlemen please welcome uri Nizi. What are incentives for the people that are not indoctrinated into understanding what that is? Incentives is something that will make you do a thing that you wouldn't do otherwise. They try to push you in this direction. A common mistake is that incentive is only money. It's definitely not. There are many other things that could be. It could be status. It could be playing computer games, not teaching at class, many other things. But in general, it's something that will make you do a thing that otherwise you wouldn't. What do you think that economists get most wrong about incentives? 
It's uh, it's a long list, but basically, it's uh, if you read about incentives in economics, it's you see a formula as, as if it's physics, right? As if you're talking about particles or atom atoms, you know, moving around the the world, and that's not the case. We are talking about people. Incentives work. That part, economists got very much right, but we don't always know how they work. The simplifying assumptions that people just you know you give them more money, it's better. You you give them more incentives. You're going to get more of what you want. That's just wrong. The main thing that people, that economists miss, I think, is that incentives send a signal. When I give you incentive, when I tell you, if you'll do X, I'll pay you $10, then you get the $10, plus you get a signal that that's what I want you to do. And then you start thinking, why does Uri want me to do this? Is that bad for me? Is that good for me? What are his motives, right? So you get, you start interpreting this. Incentives basically complete a story. You have a story in your mind, you look at the world, and once you get incentives, it helps you to create one sort of, of a story. And it's kind of like a feedback loop because for every incentive that I'm given, there is a story about that incentive. What does it mean? What do I know about Uri? What has Uri incentivized me to do previously? What can I infer about his desires for me moving forward? Ongoing story that never ends. Okay. So if that's what economists get wrong, what's the missing addition? What what gets folded into the economic view of this, which starts to flesh it out a little bit more? So after trashing my economist friends, now I can trash my psychologist friends. Basically, psychologists, when they talk about incentives, so you can take the same class, the same um, title of class in my business school. One would be taught by economists that will be completely math, completely out of, it's not people, it's about uh, machinery. And you can take the same class with psychologists and over there they'll say that you, you go to work just because you want fulfillment and all the good stuff that you get from work. That's also a mistake, right? So it's also not the case. It's the, the combination of the two is what you should think about. I go to work because I need to make money and I go to work because I want to feel better about myself. And the secret is how you get these signals to work together, right? So that's the, that's what I'm trying to do in this. So, how to get the, the money that I give you, and you need money when you come to work, you, you go because you, you need the money. But how do I make the, the payments that I give you such that you actually feel better about yourself, feel better about going to work or do whatever the activity I'm interested in? How common is it to have this more integrated view? Uh, it's not common at all. So like I said, if you'll take a class in the business school, you'll take either of the, of the versions. There are very few that gives you both versions, I think, and that's that's pity. That's what that's basically the gap that I'm trying to fill over here. Fascinating. Okay, so break down social signaling and self signaling for me. What's the difference? So when we're talking about signaling, the the first one is quite clear. It's what you know, what I want you to think about me. I I do things. I dress up. I uh, decide to contribute. I decide to do good things or bad things. Because I care about the signals that I send to you. I care what you think about me, what you, your listeners, my bosses, my kids, what they think about me. That's the social signaling. And the self-signaling is also surprisingly about myself. So I don't really know how good I am. And when I say good, by the way, I don't mean good in the philosophical version of it. Good could be I could be a mass murderer and good for me would be that I killed 10 people today, right? So what I don't know how good I am at whatever my goals are, and I look at my actions and I 
I learn from it about myself. I can give you a story from the from the book, an example from the book. Imagine that you live in a cold place. You see your neighbor walks in the morning in a cold morning to the recycle center with a large bag filled with 100 soda cans. What are you going to think about her? She's very altruistic. Oh, my God, I can't believe that she's trudging through the snow purely to save the planet. Perfect. That's what she will probably think about herself as well, right? Because she's good. Now imagine... Same story, but you live in a place where she get five cents per soda can that she is recycling. Now you're she's going a to ruthless say, capitalist. Exactly, or just cheap for five dollars, really. <laughs> so that's the social signaling. What you're going to think about her, and there's also self signaling. Before that, in the first version, she was, "I'm a good person. I care about the environment. I'm recycling. I'm I'm good." The second version, "I'm cheap. Do I really want to do it?" So this. This tells us an awful lot more about folding in status and those signals into the pure economics of the situation and also explains about how incentives can become perturbed. Absolutely. So you, you learn a lot, I think, from just this simple example because, first of all, there are a few things. You get a signal by, by the amount in this case. So because it's only $0.05, cents, you, you deduct that that's not probably not that important to do. If you would get... $5 per soda can, then you'll start buying soda cans and just recycle them, right? So if I'll pay you enough, you think, wow, that's really important. It's, it's good for the world, right? I want to do it. So the size sends you a signal. Uh, many, many of the things are sending you signals and all this. So imagine that um, I'll go to for a ski vacation and ask my, um, my assistant to stay over and work on something that they need to finish over the weekend. I'll come back on Monday and give him $10 as a thank you gift. He'll be insulted by that, right? That's if I give him a chocolate that costs ten dollars, that that's less insulting. If I give him ten thousand dollars, he'll be very happy, right? So it's not just the fact that I'm paying you; it's also how much I'm paying you. If I'll pay you ten, if I'll pay my assistant ten thousand dollars for staying over the weekend, he'll be extremely happy, right? So the, the the amount is important. In other cases that you can think about, imagine that I offer to pay you for sex then no matter how much I'm going to offer you, it's going to be insulting, right? Because that means that well, I treat you... come on, Uri. You know, everyone's got I didn't price. say that you wouldn't do it, right? Right. I didn't <laughs> say you wouldn't do it, but you might be insulted that it's not just your look that I'm after. Tell me what chocolate bar it was, and then I'll, I'll reconsider. Right, exactly. What's the difference between the $10 and the chocolate bar? The whole world of gifts is really exciting. It's... Um, we are wasting huge amounts of time and money on trying to buy gifts that will send the right signal. There is an amazing um, episode in Seinfeld that shows this when uh, Jerry has to buy Elaine uh, a birthday gift. So he and George go to the store and he says, no, this is too sexual. This is too whatever, too domestic. Too. He really needs to find because it sends signals what the gift that I'm sending. At the end, he gives her cash. And she screams at him, what, are you my uncle? Why, what are you doing, right? So gifts are really sending signals. And if I give you a $10 chocolate bar, it's still, I'm sending you a signal that I cared about you. I went to this place, I, I thought about you, I bought you, um, I bought you chocolate. Now, imagine going to a friend's tonight for dinner and you can bring a bottle of wine, you can be nice and buy a $50 bottle of wine and give them, everyone will be happy. Imagine that you'll go and say, well, I got stuck at work. I had this very boring uh, podcast with Uri and I didn't have time to buy it, but here's $50. 
that's going to be very awkward, right? So what you give is really signaling something about you. This is why online card sending websites to me have always seemed a little bit odd that part of the part of the purpose of a card, I mean, what even if you get the most insane pop-up 3D sings a pre-recorded message to you cards, what are you looking at? 15 bucks? Maybe 20 bucks? Absolute top, top, top end, and it'll it'll fly itself there. The the reason that you get a card is because everyone knows how much of a mess on it is to do. And oh, right. you've had to you've had to pick up a pen for the first time in six months since somebody else's birthday that you cared about, and I get to see your terrible handwriting and you scratch. And you know, it, like that's part of the process. And uh, yes. I, saying that, uh, now I live abroad, I actually do see the value of this because it's an absolute nightmare to ship stuff across the Atlantic. That being said, did you watch the Netflix series Pepsi? Where's my jet? No, but it's a great title. So. In the 1980s, 1990s, Pepsi started releasing Pepsi points. And if you bought a can, maybe you got a sticker of some kind, I think, and you peeled that off. And if you collected enough, you could exchange it for a pair of sunglasses or a leather jacket. And it had an ascending hierarchy of how many points got you a thing. And in the advert, at the very end, this kid that the advert is about turns up at school outside of his classroom in a Harrier jump jet. And it says at the bottom, Harrier jump jet, 1 million points. No asterisk, no small print, no subjective terms and conditions. No, this doesn't exist. This is obviously a joke. None of that. And this kid watched it, looked at it a hundred times, realized that it wasn't in there, recruited his rich friend, his father's rich friend, who was a founder and had way more money than he needed, started working out how he could can purchase in bulk all of these Pepsi cans, employ people in different warehouses distributed around the US in order to be able to do this. They basically worked out that they were getting a Harrier jump jet uh, 95% discounted pro rata. Uh, and they then began this massive litigation between this kid and Pepsi. And I thought it's it's a really good documentary. If anyone hasn't watched it on Netflix, I, I highly recommend that you watch it. I will. Okay, so we've looked at signals. We've looked at what it says about ourselves, what it says socially. What's the problem when it comes to mixed signals? So I can tell you what's important for me, but then I give you signals that say something very different, right? So remember, incentive sends signal. And I can tell you that I care about, for example, I care about quality. I really want you to do it this well. But then I pay you for quality, for quantity. You're not going to invest that much in quality. You're going to think about the, the quantity, how much you can do. Can you do more than this? And you'll neglect the quality. So, so here's, here's, here are a few examples, right? So think about um, drivers, bus drivers. So in Israel, we have this route in which you have bus drivers that are paid by, by the hour. You go on them. They drive very nicely. They're very polite. Everything is great. They, they take their time. On the other hand, we have these minibuses that are paid per passenger. The driver is paid per passenger. They drive like crazy, right? Because they need to be there on time to pick up people. They start driving before you sit, right? It's really inconvenient. They are less safe, all of the bad stuff. So the quality really suffers, but they produce more. Now, there, there are lots of uh, stories like that about small, unimportant things. But if you think about healthcare in the US, that's a great example where it becomes much sadder. So imagine two doctors. You go to the doctor and you, need the, you have back pain. 
Now the doctor looks at you and there are three options. Either the doctor says, look, she looks at you and she says, that's fine, just rest a bit, it's going to be okay. Or she looks at you and says, sorry, you really need this surgery. Those are two extreme cases, you'll get what you, what you deserve, what you need. In the middle, in the gray area, you'll have lots of places where, yeah, you know, one doctor will say that you need a surgery, another not. Now, imagine that you live in a place like most of the world in which the physician is not paid per surgery, per procedure that she's making. She's going to look at it and make a call decision based on science, how she understands science. Now, imagine that on top of that, she's paid a few thousand dollars for operating on you. If you think that that's not going to affect her judgment, you are very naive. Right? She might even not know that that's what she's doing, but she is going to look at it and say, look, I, I, you clearly need a, a surgery where if you compare hospitals in which the physician is or is not paid per surgery, you see a big difference in this, in back surgeries, in C-sections, in many other things. Think about a sad example. Someone goes to the doctor, the doctor tells that person, look, I'm sorry, you're not going to see next Christmas. You are, you're dying from cancer. We did the best we can. That's it. I can give you another round of chemo. It will prolong your life by three months, but that's not the quality of life is not going to be high. You're going to suffer. Or I can send you on with palliative care and make sure that you die in a, in a nice way, right? That's, that's one way of saying it. Now imagine that this same physician, this same oncologist is paid $10,000 if you choose to take this round, another round of chemo. Now, without... It's not, it's not that, this, that this doctor is doing something wrong or immoral, but this doctor might not even know, but is going to be much more likely to recommend another round of chemo, right? So that's, all of it is about the quality versus quantity. In my example, I'm, a, I'm judged by publications, how many papers I publish, research papers I publish. My dean can decide to pay me per paper, and then the signal that, that I hear is that I need to publish as many papers as I can. But then the quality is going to suffer. I'm going to publish a lot of papers, but they are not going to be very good. Right? So all of this is the quantity versus quality, which is, I'll always tell you, the hospital will always tell the surgeon, look, you care about the patient. That's number one priority. The, the hospital will never, tell, will never tell you, look, your goal is to maximize the profits per patient. But when they give the incentives, that's a signal that the incentive sends. So that's the mixed signal part of it. And it's not, as you said, it's not as if the surgeon is really even capable of removing that signal from their own mind or that incentive, sorry, from their own mind. So you go, okay, even if you were fully aware, even if it's, there's a surgeon who works in America, who's listening to this podcast right now, who gets incentivized to be the oncologist that gets another round of chemo, how on earth are you supposed to do the expected value calculation of, well, I understand that deep down there is an amount of me that will right. lean toward wanting to be paid and I'll have to discount appropriately. And, you know, it, it's impossible. It's impossible. And we have research showing this. So we have, it's not with surgeons. We don't play around with, uh, with people's life, but we do play around with money. So we get people to the lab. We tell them there is option A, option B. You need to, to recommend it to someone else. Most of them choose to recommend option A in this case. We bring another group, we tell them, here's option A, here's option B. You need to recommend one of them. By the way, if you recommend option B, you'll get a dollar. Now, most of them recommend option B. Now you can say either they're cynical and they just lie, or they convince themselves like, themselves, like the surgeon or the oncologist that you just mentioned, that that's actually better for the, for the other person. So we have a third 
group in which we tell them, here's option A, here's option B, choose one of them, don't tell me, which one do you think is better? After they choose, we tell them, oh, by the way, if you recommend option B, we'll give you a dollar. Same incentive as before, but first these people had to make their judgment and only then they learn about the incentives. Now most of them again recommend A, right? Which shows that in the second option, the one in which they learned about the incentives as they learned about the options, they really changed the way they think about it. They self-deceive themselves to think that B is better. I think that very much of that is going on in the mind of physicians or financial advisors, any people, mechanics maybe. Yeah, that's the, uh, was it fiduciary agreement that a lot of accountants and investment advisors have that the fiduciary, uh, whatever it is, consent uh, forces them to at least try and have the client's issues in mind. Speaking of, you mentioned uh, buses and minibuses. Didn't you look at something to do with uh, incentives for Uber drivers? Yes. So the, you mentioned, uh, we, we talked about the buses and minibuses, right? So how do you get incentives that will give you money per passenger? So you'll actually have reason not to sit and drink coffee, and but rather to think about where am I going to have more passengers? I'm going to make more money while not making you reduce the quality drive very fast, dirty car and all this. And I think that the ride sharing like Uber, Lyft found a very smart way of doing this by uh, giving the rate, by creating the rating system. So now after a ride, if you drive too fast, too aggressively, your car will be dirty or something like that, I will give you one star. That's going to be bad for you. So you really care about your ratings. So now on top of the incentive to be fast, it also give you incentives to be good. And that actually works. And Interestingly, it doesn't cost the company anything to create this incentive scheme, right? So you really uh, create something that cost you nothing and was really uh, important. Now, my experience, I don't know about yours, whenever I still use taxis, which is not a lot, it's always less pleasant than the Uber experience. Correct. Right? I would agree. The Uber, is, the Uber is always cleaner. The driver is more polite. Everything is nicer. It's incentivized. Yes. Yeah. Without I, money, uh... without any cost. Yes, yes. One thing that I learned that was interesting about Uber is the drivers do not get paid more if the journey ends up being detoured, if it takes longer, if you get stuck in traffic. Uh, and I thought it's a little bit brutal for the drivers, but it's very good for the rider that if you do hit an uh, unrealized uh, challenge of some kind, that it is still, you're not going to be paid uh, you're not going to be charged anymore. And it's not as if the, you know, the old will take you around the houses, the long route in order to ramp up the right, extra right, amount right, of right, money. Right, right. It stops that from happening. So this part is clearly great, right? So they really have the incentive to get you from where they pick you up to the drop place as fast as possible. I actually think that they're underpaid. I would and agree. The, how do I know that? Apart from the fact that I know how much, you know, they tell me how much they make and they worked a bit with Uber. Apart from that, I know that it takes too long to get an Uber where I live. So pre-pandemic, it used to be five minutes. Now it's often 15 minutes. 15 minutes means that they are not paid enough. If they would have been paid more, I would prefer, you know, I'm privileged. I have the money. So that's true. It's not my daughter would not prefer it. But uh, but still, I think that uh, just from, from the quality of service, how long it takes, I would prefer that they will make 20% more and I'll get them within five minutes instead of 15 minutes. Right? So... And, and sometimes, for example, it takes them 10 minutes to get here. So they drive for 10 minutes and then they take me from my home to the university, which they get $8. Right? 
that's kind of uh, I think that that's bad. We need. I, I I really I feel good when I pay a fair wage to the people that. Me too. Uh, I use Uber. I don't have a car in America, so I've been since I moved here about a year ago. I've been absolutely hammering Uber. I must have done hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of journeys just in the last year. And uh, yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Uber over the next few years. Okay, so one of the other mixed signals that you talk about is encouraging innovation but punishing failure. What would be an example right. of that? Right, right, right. So I, you always tell people, you, you tell your worker, you don't tell them, look, do, do exactly the same. Uh, don't innovate, just do small changes. Think about my world, right? I can write lots of papers by changing a small parameter in something that someone else did. Those are going to be really boring, bad papers. Or I can take a risk. I can think about something completely different. And by taking a risk, basically what I'm saying is that I'm increasing the variance, right? So there is a chance that it will be much better, but there's also a chance that it will be much worse. Now, if I work for you and you look at me, you see that I tried something and I failed, and as a result, you fire me or don't give me a bonus or whatever way you punish me, why would I take this risk, right? Why would I go and try something new if I know that it, that it has risk? So the, the right thing to do it to, to, to encourage innovation is to tell you, look, go ahead, try it. If it doesn't work, tell me fast, don't drag it. Because if I know that you're going to punish me, I'm going to still you know, throw good money after the bad money and try to make it work, force it to work. No. Just whenever, whenever I see that it doesn't work, just kill it. That's fine. And then do this debrief. You know, what happened? Why did it happen? Now, if you find out that it happened because I slept until noon and then drank lots of coffee, then fire me, then punish me. But if you see, look, it was a good idea. The intuition was solid. You tried it. Turns out it didn't work. Let's learn from it from the future. I'll know to make the same mistake in the, in the future and move on to the next thing. That's the right uh, way to do. I run experiments for a living, right? That's that's my research. Doing incentives for 25, 30 years. Very often I have an idea. I go to the experiment, I test it, and the students do something else than what I expect. So I get mad at the students, but I try to learn from it, right? Why didn't it work? Sometimes it's more interesting. If your intuition didn't work, you learn something much more interesting. Sometimes. And sometimes it's not, but the point is to to incentivize really uh, failure as well. Because if the failure happened because your intuition was wrong, but still was solid, just uh, don't punish for that. Rory Sutherland has a story where he always talks about the fact that uh, nobody ever got fired for hiring Accenture. And his point being that if you have a, a, a reliable but boring pursuit, no one ever gets in trouble for that. Whereas if you say, look, uh, th th this is something we're not going to use the blueprint. We're going to actually try and go out there and do something that may have a an upside of a hundred x, but a, a slightly greater downside. As opposed to just iterating on what we've done before. Uh, and he says that this is one of the reasons why the consultancy model, uh, a lot of advertising, is uh, very safe, very boring. You know, it's handled by accountants uh, and economists right. rather than by creatives and artists. Right, right, right. I think that is absolutely right. Now you can think about the world in which you don't, you you cannot allow for the downside risk, right? So imagine that you know I don't want my physician to take risks on my uh, on me, right? In some cases, but then your message should be: Look, I want you to play it safe. Creativity is important in other places. Be go and uh, paint in your garage uh, after that, after work. But here, it's really important. That's fine. That's a message, and then be go with it. But what I'm saying is don't tell them, be creative. But then, like you said, if, if it doesn't work, punish them. 
that's that's the mixed signal, right? So if you want creativity, don't punish. If you don't want creativity, which is also fine, tell them that that's not what you're looking for in this job. What was that story about the Coke vending machine thermometer? I love this story. So the CEO of Coca-Cola, another probably either engineer or economist uh, without social skills, uh, he, got, he, had, uh, he learned that he can put a thermometer, that there is a thermometer at the vending machine that can tell them whether, let's say, let's divide it to hot and cold days. He took probably Econ 101 that talks about price discrimination and said, look, on a cold day, we'll charge them a dollar and a hot day, we'll charge them $1.50 because they're willing to pay more. That's what airlines do. That's what hotels do. It's, it's, it's fine, right? So if it's busy, you take more. People, of course, got pissed at them. They said, why are you trying to take advantage of us when it's hot? That's, you know, that's not nice. And the right way to, to do it would have been making the re- regular price $1.50. And on a cold day, we'll give you a discount. It's only a dollar, right? So that, that's really great. Right? That, that way, you know, you're nice to me, actually. When you can, you're nice to me. AMC, last month, AMC came up with a similar program. They decided that AMC theaters, they decided that they, they're going to charge different prices for different seats, right? If you want to sit in the middle of the theater, you'll pay extra. You'll pay, they'll call it premium seats and you'll pay extra. Again, lots of pushbacks. It's not enough that we pay so much for the tickets, that we pay so much for the popcorn. Now you also want, you want us to pay much more for the middle seats, you know, F you. The way they should have said it is, and then they try to say, well, inflation, whatever. They should have started with inflation. Look, it costs us more. We have to pay more for labor. Everything costs us more. We have to raise prices. We are really sorry for this. That's not what we want. We want everyone to be able to go. And because of that, we're going to give discount for the first row and for the site so everyone can still come over and, and use it, right? So that's the exactly the same incentives, but very different story. Think about uh, coming back from the pandemic. A friend of mine told me a story a couple of days ago. They they went they they worked remotely and then they decided to go back to three days a week in the in the office and their employees were really upset with them. They looked at it as punishment. And what she said is that the right thing to do after listening to these two examples, she said the right thing to do was to say, oh, look, sorry or not sorry, the pandemic is over. We are back to five days a week. However, because you were so good. And so responsible, we're going to let you work from home for two days, right? So exactly the same story, but it's not we're punishing you by bringing you to to the office for three days, but we're rewarding you by giving you two days uh, to work from home, right? So this there is a story out there. Our brain completes the story, and the incentives can really change the way we we look at the story. This feels like uh, anchoring bias. Is, is playing a massive role here. Anchoring bias and expectations are playing, uh, doing a, a lot of the heavy lifting. Anchoring, framing, all of the good stuff that we know from uh, behavioral economics and behavioral science in general works over here. The, the twist is that now it's done by incentives, right? So it's not just a story. It's also, it's done by the incentive. You give it as an incentive to people. And that's important to understand that incentive tell a story. And if you control it, you're going to do better. If that's the case, how is it that Peloton saw an increase in sales when they put the price up? So uh, Peloton is a great example. So the CEO wrote that when they started, they charged $1,000 for the bike. And no one wanted to buy it because they decided that it's probably not a good, they concluded that it's probably not a great bike if it costs so little. Again, it tells you something about the people that think that $1,000 per bike is little, but that's what he said. 
doubled the price, $2,000, a bit more than that, if I remember correctly. Everyone said, wow, that must be a great bike and moved in, right? Imagine uh, back to, to the wine example. You go to, usually you buy a $20 wine. Now you're celebrating something. You're celebrating birthday tonight. You're going to the store and say, tonight I'm going to, today I'm going to buy a $50 bottle of wine. Why? Because we have this price equals quality in our brain, which is true in many cases. If you want to buy a laptop with more memory, it's going to cost you more. You want to buy a Tesla with longer range, you're going to pay more. But in some cases, this is just uh, in your brain and you need to know where to. I'll never it. forget one of the first, first ever times that I sat down at AS level business when I was 16 or 17. And they were explaining about the fact that uh, Nike's shoe range and you have the lowest one, which is 30 pounds and then 50 pounds and then 70 pounds and all the way up to you know, 250 pounds. And this, is, this has got all of the fanciest pieces of kit. But if you look at the difference in terms of the tech that goes into 250 and goes into 150, which might be the next closest, you're not looking at very much. It's uh, apart from signaling, I've got the most expensive pair of shoes. They're always going to look different. You're always going to be able to tell that they'll right. look different especially at the bottom end and at the top end. Maybe you'll be able to tell. I won't, right? So you have, you have your people that you really care about them being able to tell, right? So there is a group of people that look at the shoe and say, look, this is so my wife. a 250-pound pair. Right. I, I wear $50 sneakers, right? And But my wife sometimes tells me, look, look at these uh, white tennis shoes. Those are 250 sometimes $1,000 shoes, right? So absolutely. Yeah, and the reason... The signal that to the right people. Precisely. So that's the first part. But the second part, and I, I remember thinking, well, look, if we just take a uh, utilitarian amount of shoe per pound spent equation uh, and, right. and, try and, and try and equate that back, why, why does anybody, including myself, why am I seduced by the shoes at the top? And there is this sort of signaling thing that goes on. But the other reason is that if you look at the area under the curve, under the price curve, there are people out there who either simply want the absolute best because that's what they want or have 250 or 300 or 500 or a thousand bucks to spend on a pair of shoes. And if there is one that is within that bracket, that's the pair of shoes that they're going to get. Now, if the best pair of shoes happens to be $150, they're going to buy that pair. So why not just continue ratcheting up the right. scene features these shoes are Bluetooth enabled. These shoes will correct your gluten intolerance. These shoes will do whatever. Like, um, we'll you write your papers. Precisely correct. Well, that would be great for you. Um, yes. Yeah, the, you just might as well continue to ratchet it up. Capture as much area under the curve of, right. of that. Demand. So, so think about wine. You go to a wine store. You can buy wine from five dollar a bottle up to fifty thousand dollars. Right, and you know, I drank some of the more expensive wines because someone else was buying it. I, I couldn't tell the difference. I love wine. I drink a lot. Give me the 20, a good $20 bottle of wine. I'm extremely happy with that. Very, but what you said about having very expensive ones, in many restaurants you have, you know, you go to a restaurant, not a very fancy restaurant, and you look at the wine menu, there is a $5,000 bottle of wine over there. And then you ask the, the, the waiter, did anyone ever order it? Nah. They probably don't even have the wine. But that gives you that sends you a signal. Look, this is this is a serious restaurant because they have this very expensive wine. Probably the same goes with the sneakers, right? So, if this company can actually manufacture a thousand dollar pair of shoes, they must be doing something really good. They must be really high quality, even if no one buys them. 
that sends a signal that they're really good. And some people will actually buy them for the reasons that you mentioned. Also, by pushing the top end price further up, what you're doing is relatively making the mid-range products seem cheaper, right? We're looking right. at anchoring anchoring again off right. the top. Okay. okay, so you've got um, long-term goals and short-term results as another mixed signal that often happens. What's going on there? So there is this saying that uh, we all know by a politician, we all know what's the right thing to do. We just no don't know how to get elected with it, right? So think about politicians. Think about, I live in California. Think about uh, my uh, governor that understands that building a train from San Diego to San Francisco, a fast train, is really important. So if I want to go from San Diego to even to LA, it's like a three-hour trip. It's, it's just impossible. It's not, it's not a viable option. And say that uh, our governor will decide, yes, I'm going to invest in this. It's going to cost, I don't know, $50 billion, but we're going to put the money in it and we're going to do it. He'll have to invest a lot now. And the benefit will be 20 years in the future. He'll be long gone. He will probably not get reelected because he diverted funds from roads today. He can fix the bridge next to my house. I'll say, wow, he's a good governor. If he invests in something that I don't see, I will not understand it, right? So... Why would they invest in the long run if the short run is so um, so much more rewarding in terms of getting reelected? Think about a CEO that the board tells them, look, we care about the long run. We want to be successful in the long run, this company, please, you know. But then judge the CEO based on the quarterly earnings, quarterly performance. What is the CEO going to do? Imagine that the computer system, whatever, the network really needs upgrading. So the CEO can decide to invest a lot in it in the coming two quarters, and then it's going to get huge benefits in the future. But the next two quarters are going to look really bad, really poorly in terms of profits. And that CEO will probably be fired or be will not get the bonus or whatever, right? So we tell them, we, we tell the people that work for us, like the governor or the CEO, that look, we really want you to think about the long run, but then we, we give them incentives to do the short run, and that's uh, that's a big problem. Now, there's not always a, a good solution. So the solution for uh, the governor uh, would be dictatorship, right? But I don't want to live in a dictatorship, right? So I kind of like the, the democratic system in which uh, they need to report back to us. So you don't always have a solution for that, but we try to, we should try at least. For Why a CEO, so... If I had a company and they needed to elect a CEO, I would tell that person, look, I really care about the long run. I'm going to let you do this for two years and just run with it. I'm going to, to sit and watch you. Hopefully you'll do well. I'll try to find a person that I can really trust and just let them run with it. I would not look at the short run performance. I wonder whether uh, tenured professors have the same sort of sense. Now, one of the problems that you have, obviously, if you lock somebody in and you guarantee them uh, a, a, an amount of time that they're going to stay employed or supported by you, uh, that means that they can drag their feet. That then creates another challenge that you have. I which is completely disagree. Tenure is the best thing that uh, God ever created. You and, sound uh, like you might have some perverse yes, maybe. incentives here. Uri. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So it's... Uh, Look, we first of all we are tortured for for many years until we get tenure, right? So that's uh, that part is is there, and you try to really when we decide whether to give someone a tenure, we really try to figure out did we get this person addicted to to doing research, to doing his or her job, right? If we didn't get them addicted, then the second we'll tenure them, 
they can just go, I need to teach three weekends a year. I can be in the Caribbean for the rest of the time. No one can do anything unless I'll do, you know, something horrible. I'll say the, you know, racist things or something like that. I will, I will keep my job. Yet I'm, I'm working very hard, right? Because I really enjoy it. Right? So that's part of what I said at the beginning that I'm, I'm doing it because I'm getting paid, but I could have worked much less and still get the same amount of money. I enjoy it, right? I want to convince people to buy my book. I'm, I'm here uh, trying to, to do that, right? So we are uh, intrinsically motivated. So that's the, but that's not always working, right? Sometimes you tenure people and they just quit. See lots of them, we call them Deadwood in the, in the, in the, in our faculty. And you see this and it's very hard to do. Now, I think that the main reason for tenuring with, you know, academic faculty was the freedom of speech. Cause now I can really say whatever I think. Again, within reason, I cannot say racist things. I cannot say some other stuff, but I can, I can say, uh, radical opinions that maybe my university doesn't like it, but and uh, many other people will not like it, but I can still express it. And that, that seems to be really important. And you can pursue innovation, you can focus on the long term, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't disagree. I, it's, um, it's very interesting. I didn't really know what tenure was until I started the show. I haven't um, involved myself in the inner workings of how employment of professors at universities actually uh, goes on all that much. Right. And so given what we're trying to do there is um, incentivize uh, good behavior. Why is it that fines are so ineffective at incentivizing against unwanted behavior? Just to finish the previous one, exactly what you said, the longer I can invest in the book, I talk about a female genital mutilation uh, project that we're trying to do. We're working on it for six years. It's going to take many years until it's ready. I can do it because I don't have to worry about the short run. Let's right, talk. So more, let's exactly. talk more about that. I want to. I, I want to talk about this female genital mutilation thing. How are you? How are you trying to uh, change the incentives of these places where it's a common practice? When you go to Africa, there are many places. So tens of millions, if not more than that, of uh, young women that go through this female genital genital mutilation, which is a horrible, horrible procedure. We focus on the Maasai tribe because over there, as far as we know, the data is not clear, but. The vast majority of girls around the age of 10 to 12 uh, go through this procedure. Now, we might say that, oh, again, these Americans come and try to change the behavior of uh, the culture of our indigenous no, people, et cetera, et cetera. All the good stuff that was done way too often in the past. This case is not the same because people who understand what they're talking about say that it's worse than rape what happens over there, right? So it's not something that if it was raping 10-year-old girls, no one would say, well, it's part of the culture, we should allow it, right? FGM is worse than that by many cases. So uh, the question is, why does it happen? So we looked at it and tried to understand why does it happen? And it turns out that to a great extent, it happens for economic reasons. Because the girl, after she, went, she goes through this FGM, her value in the marriage market is much higher. And that's, you know, it's a very patriarchal society Basically, the value of a woman is measured in the number of cows. How many cows you're going to get for her? Is it 10 cows or 15 cows or whatever? And the value of the girl for, the, for her family is going to be higher if she's going through this, through this procedure, and she'll be able to find a better husband. Why? So that's why it happens. Uh, why? Because uh, she can be part of, this, of, the, of the group of women over there. If she's not cut and everyone, all the other girls are, then women later on, they still treat her like a, a baby. They She'll be outcast to a great extent. Have you considered the motives, the 
uh, culturally adaptive reasons why this would have first come about, I'm going to throw my bro science evolutionary psychologist hat on here and guess that maybe one of the reasons why, you know, speaking as a Westerner who quite enjoys it when the girls that you have sex with, most of my friends want the other their partner to enjoy it. I'm going to guess that this is because if the incentive for individual women to have sex gets dropped through the floor, chastity is something that you can expect much more highly. Is that what it seems to be? Every, everything you said, it has few layers, but first of all, according to people who understand, I'm not an anthropologist, I'm not an historian, but apparently the men used to go for a year to, to fight or something, they come back, find their wife pregnant. They wanted to prevent this. Now, interestingly, what you said about sex, you ask the young men, that needs to decide who they're going to marry. Do you want your wife to enjoy sex? They all say, yes, we want it. Exactly like you said, we want her to enjoy sex as much as we do. But then what are you, who are you going to marry? Well, I'm going to marry uh, a woman that went through this procedure because then she'll be a better wife in a sense. Their value as a wife, right? So it's it's really complicated, right? Mm. But it, But it's all about the economics of it. Now, what we came up with is how can we create an, an alternative economic institution that will compensate for this, for the loss of, of value of the woman in the, in the marriage market. What we found is that they really want the girls to go to high school. High school is, um, is far away, costs a lot of money. Think about college for us. It's really, it's a boarding school that costs lots of money. If the girl goes there for high school, comes back when she is 18, then her value is much, much higher already. She doesn't need to go through FGM. She is already an independent woman. She can be a teacher or nurse or whatever. She's really going to do well. But the parents don't have money to send her out. What we said, look, we're going to, to have nurses check, validate that they're not, uh, they did, you didn't perform this horrible procedure on them. If you didn't, we're going to pay for high school. As long as she's uncut, we're going to pay for high school. And we think that that's going to be a very strong motivation for the parents, again, because of the economic aspects of this. And hopefully, you won't have to do it forever because once you'll have enough women that will not be cut, the peer pressure will switch from, oh, you're not cut, you're a baby, you, we don't have to consider you at all, to, oh, you're cut, that's unfortunate. Right? Yes. This hopefully is a, this a, will change that. Also, that would mean that the women who are cut are also most likely to be uneducated, which is a signal that women would not want to be associated with. This is something, It's a again, neither of us... Uh, educated, uh, fully educated anthropologists or evolutionary psychologists, but the knife edge that different cultural technologies, uh, the way that the status of different types of uh, behavior um, are viewed in society to me seems it's so, I mean, you know, we're talking about here a relatively small intervention to stop an incredibly heavily ingrained piece of of culture and it's just i find it so interesting how fine the line is between those two things and, and they have lots of other problems that over there i i can see the problem of people with us changing the culture because they have so a girl is getting married at 14 with a 30 year old man they start having kids and they have lots and lots of kids now pre-antibiotics about half of the kids died so it was manageable. Now they have too many kids in the sense that the resources that they have cannot support them. Right. So in terms of uh, planning, it's much harder to do. And they, they, they have uh, serious problems with that as well. Right. So like you said, very simple thing 
very simple incentive, very simple change in what you do can really have a, a huge impact on the society. Given that you're uh, not quite the uh, fully robotic behavioral economics professor, but probably are not used to having such a fundamentally benevolent impact on a culture with the work that you do, how, um, how does it feel personally crossing into a, you know, pretty much a, a universal good being able to utilize what you've learned in your theory to really make a, a, a pretty important change to the world here? How does that feel for you? So that's what happens with age, I think, right? So as a young uh, man, I wanted to publish as many papers, become famous, be successful, whatever. Now, when you get older, you start to think about, okay, how can I use it to, to really impact the world? So I work with companies, but that's usually not doing good to the world, right? So I help companies make more money. That's not, come on, that's that's not creating value to the world. That's creating value to the company and and to me. And then you can think about few things that are like this, that, you know, if I can help these girls, right, if I can help, if I can save one girl from going through this, that's already, I'll, I'll die much happier, right? And clearly if we can have more. And, and you can think about other, um, other things that we try to do. So I mentioned the oncologist. We're trying to do end-of-life kind of um, planning to help people plan better to the end of life and, and these kind of things. And I, I find it much more exciting than running another lab experiment about some negotiation game that I still find interesting, but that's less exciting, like you said. You've become an ascended individual, a patriarch who is trying to bestow his insights on the world. Um, I just need a white beard, a long white beard. I think that you could grow it out. I think it would look well. What about the uh, fines um, in terms of stopping unwanted behavior? What's the problems there? Uh, the problem is with your perception. I think you're wrong. So fines, all we know about fines comes from really silly experiments in which, you know, they, first of all, you cannot come to my lab and live with less money than you came in. So I can't really give you a fine in my lab. And much of what we say, exactly what you said, is the perception in psychology. And I think that it's wrong, that small that fines are, don't work. Well, Small fines don't work. So I have this uh, this study about uh, daycares. So our girls used to go to a daycare in, um, my wife and I lived in a suburb of Tel Aviv, and we needed to pick them up by 4 p.m. In the, in the afternoon. We used to go to Tel Aviv to have lunch. Then one day there was traffic. I drove like crazy in order to be there by 4 p.m. because you don't pick up your kids too late. Then the principal decided that she'll put a $3 fine if you come more than 10 minutes late. Again, we were in Tel Aviv, again, traffic. This time I didn't drive like crazy because I'm not going to risk my life for $3. It doesn't make any sense, right? So the small fine over here did change the perception. And by the way, we found, when we ran the experiment, we found that indeed many people came late, more people came late. And it's not because they thought about it as a babysitting system way, you know, I'm paying for babysitter, because when we removed the fine after a while, they kept coming late. So what happens? What we think happened, it's Aldous Tukin and I. What we think is that before that, you didn't know how bad it is to come late. Now we told you that it's $3 bad, right? If it's only, if it's that, it's, it cannot be important. Now, and you can never and, remove that anchor. Exactly. This knowledge, once I, once I learned it, you can't take it. Now, if in some places in the US, it's $10 per minute. Then, then you think about. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine told me that in Paris there is a place where if you're late, they take your kid to the police station, and you have to pick up your kid from the police station. That's that's big. 
Wow. Yeah. And you've got the social impact of that. You've got increased inconvenience. So I remember. So so it's not that fines don't work. It's small fines that don't work. Interesting. Okay. Now, I remember learning about Estonian speed traps. Have you heard of these? No. So in Estonia, they have um, police by the side of the road. And what they do is they'll ping you. If you're going over the speed limit, they'll catch up. They'll take you to the side of the road. And you'll have the choice between, I think it's a really, really high fine. I think it's 350 euros maybe. Or you can stay by the side of the road for 30 minutes. Ah, nice. And I thought that that was a really interesting way. Or, you know, most people that are going to be pulled over by the Estonian police are not making 700 euros an hour. Right? right. But there are people for whom I'm on my way to pick my kids up from nursery. We have a wedding we're getting to. We're making a flight. We're doing whatever. Uh, and it just really makes people, I think, question the time and the, the money element. Uh, in a, it's, it's much more interlinked. I thought that was a very smart way to, to do it. I would put both. So why not pay 350 and wait 30 minutes? Oh, right? Because some people, some people are rich enough. Some people are rich enough that they don't care about the money. Some people, well, but they do care about being right. Well, let's think about it this way: If you do do that, what you are optimizing for are people who are both time rich and money rich. Exactly, exactly. So that's equalizing. You know, everyone is going to suffer. One way that they did it in many places is this preventive driving. So if you, if you, they catch you, you get a ticket. You have to go to this school, right? That's just that's pure punishment. You you don't really learn anything over there, but it's it's very effective punishment. So now I think you can do it online, but in the past you really had to go there. I was fortunate enough not to go there, but my friends who did said that it was like three afternoons real punishment. So there is a everybody in the UK will be aware of the speed awareness course, which is what you're talking about. So uh, in the UK you're allowed a ten percent over the speed limit. Uh, that was originally introduced because analog speedometers had a 10% tolerance where the car may be sufficiently inaccurate. The fact that that's been legacy grandfathered in, in a world with digital speedometers that are probably accurate to, you know, 0.1% of a mile per hour, et cetera, is still hilarious. But, um, and then I think it's the next 10% over that, if you are in that bracket, you have the choice between a hundred pounds fine and three points on your license. If you hit twelve, then you lose your license, or you can go and do a speed awareness course. The speed awareness course is a morning or an afternoon with an incredibly grumpy gentleman stood at the front, asking you. I've I've been so this is personally relevant to me. Um, the most banal, boring questions, wagging his finger. Uh, saying you are driving down the street. How can you tell if you're going too quickly? Like just, oh my God, it's torture. However, uh, you're only allowed even one of those, I think once per two-year period. So you only even get one of those grace periods. So there's this sort of ascending punishment ladder that you can go through. And if you use that, you lose one of your lives. Uh, But honestly, I think that the, you know, I, I have a number of friends who are regularly in and out of points on their license. I've only ever got pinged by this once, either through my great driving or through fortune or whatever. However, how the speed awareness course stuck in my mind, I can remember 
the the classroom that we sat in. I can remember how boring the tapes were. I can remember the effort of having to drive there on the morning. I can remember everything about it, right? That's a very, yeah, very strong right. disincentive. So you see, fines do work. You just need to find the right fine. What, whatever will make you drive carefully after that. Whatever hurts the most. Talking exactly. about cars, what was that online car shop, Edmunds? Right, Edmunds, yes. So that's actually interesting. Edmonds is a great company. I worked with them there from LA. And what they do is give you information about cars. So you want to buy a car, you go there, you check, I don't know, Toyota Corolla from, you know, a new Toyota Corolla and you, you learn about it. And then when you want to buy, when you're ready to buy, they have ads from local dealerships. So you put in your zip code and they know where you are. They, they offer you deals. Now, if you buy through them, so if you click on, on the link over there and you end up buying the car, uh, they, they, that's of course good for them because then the dealerships are going to pay them more for uh, for advertising. Now, what they did is gave you say say that you bought a twenty thousand dollar car, they gave you five hundred dollar discount if you if you clicked on Edmonds and went over there. Now, five hundred dollar is a lot of money, but not when you compare it to twenty thousand dollars. So we know from previous research, old research from the seventies and eighties, that imagine that you're going to buy a mouse for your computer, right? You'll go to the to the store and the, the guy will tell you it's $50, but if you'll walk 10 minutes, there is another store, they have it 50% off, you'll get $25 off. Most of us will go. Many of us will go. I imagine that you buy a computer and then you also buy this, this you pay $2,000 for the, for the computer, and you also want, as one of the accessories, a mouse. And now the, the guy will tell you you can either pay $2,050 over here or you can go and buy it over there and pay 2025 over there. You say, well, it's not right. So you compare it to the deal itself. So $500 in itself didn't, it worked, but not as good as you would imagine. What we thought is something that is called mental accounting. Mental accounting is basically what you care about. What, what is it that you really care? Not all money is created equal. And what we thought about is gas money, right? So if I give you a credit card for $500 that you can spend on buying gas, now you can imagine yourself standing in the gas station and you know fueling your car. $500 is a lot of money. You can fuel it for a long time. This is something that you really don't like to do. And now you get it for free. That has much stronger impact. The same amount of money. Actually, we found in our experiment that we did with them that $200 in gas money were more effective than $500 cash. Now, if I'll ask you, what do you prefer? That I'll give you $500 in cash or $200 gas money? Of course, you'll choose the $500. But because it was separate, it was different, people did not look at it as part of the deal. They said, oh, I'm going to get this. That's great. And that was more effective. And that's, again, about the story that you tell yourself, what it right. means in order to get this money. Another car that you looked at, the Toyota Prius, what was interesting yes. about that? So in the late 90s, early 2000s, both Honda and Toyota came up with the hybrid cars. And... Fortunately for them, those were really bad cars. Why, why fortunately? So today, if you buy a Prius, it's a competitive car. It's, it's a very good car. Back then, they were bad. And that was great because if you wanted to signal, look, I'm, I'm a good guy. I care about the environment. You should buy a hybrid car because for the same amount of money, you could have bought a much better car. The only reason that you would buy some, the Prius or the whatever the alternative, we'll get to it in a second, by Honda is because you care about the environment. That's why you buy hybrid cars. So that's great, right? And that's, that's very good. And that's why people were actually attracted to it, I think, to a great extent. But then 
Honda made a decision that was probably dictated by the engineers who said, look, do it based on the Honda Civic. The parts are going to be the same. Everything is going to be much easier. Toyota took a very different approach. They said, let's redesign the car completely. Now, when you see a Prius, you know that you see a hybrid car. I imagine that you drive into the parking lot with your not so great car. In one case, there is a small plank at the plank at the back saying hybrid car. That's the Honda example. In the other case, everyone sees it from distance. Look, Uri, you're a great guy. You're driving this, uh, this uh, hybrid car. And according to every people, all the people that understand, that's why Toyota won the, the market because they produce a bad car and it was clear to everyone that you're driving a bad car. So you're a good guy. Costly yeah, signal. So that's, exactly. And something important to, to, to note over here is that the importance that not all incentives are good for everyone, right? So in this case, we're talking about people who care about the environment. If you think about the guys that drive uh, pickup trucks, those incentives will mean nothing to them, right? You really have to target when I tell, when I say that you send a signal and you, you complete the story, you need to think about the people that you care about. It might be if, if you want to sell a hybrid car, don't create signals that talk to the, to the pickup uh, drivers. Mm, talking those are, about those are not freedom of the open road and loud country music. Whatever, right, exactly, exactly. What, whatever they care about, give them and whatever incentives these people care about. So, and that's true about in general, when I think we'll, when you design incentives, you really think about the signal that you send and you really think, need to think about it within the culture that you're talking about. So it could be a culture like uh, we, we use, you know, maybe the US, you can make it more competitive in Japan, competitive incentives are not good. But even within San Diego, it could be taxi drivers versus teachers versus lawyers versus Doctors, everyone will have a different culture and they'll care about different things and you need to, to adjust your story. So, and very often, I, I wouldn't know it. The people that are there, they should know what, what is it that people like that care about. It's very culturally dependent in that case. Exactly. Which exactly. also like means the, uh, the advertising company, the behavioral uh, economists yes. that are working, whoever it is, there is still an in incredibly important role for you to couch whatever the deal is, whatever the incentives are, within right. understanding the incredibly inter-complex played structure of all of the different ways that status and stories and framing and anchoring and so on and so forth happens not only within the country, not only within this particular demographic, but within this region, within that cohort, etc. You mentioned the shoes. Don't ask me about shoes. I really have the same shoe. I buy five of them every year, $50, great shoes. Don't ask me about the sneakers that cost $1,000. Well, you can ask me. I can, I can guide you through what you need to learn in order to, in order to understand it. There are some rules that I can tell you, but the, the details of this, you really need to figure out yourself. You need to find people that care about it. Don't ask me about TikTok. I, I heard about it. I, I don't know exactly what it is, right? So it's really, you need to find the people that understand what you're talking about. Is a bad incentive worse than no incentive at all then? Yes. No question about that, because bad incentives will, like you asked me at the beginning, the first question was, what's incentive? Incentive will take you in the direction that I want you to go. Bad incentives will take you away from the direction I want you to go. So think about the daycare example. Instead of getting parents to come late less time, we got parents coming late more times, right? And you wanted the, maybe a UK example. So in Wales, they had something similar. Uh, they, parents will really identify with this example. 
we always go to vacations during spring break, say, when it's crowded and it costs much more because that's when the kids are off school. So parents took their kids away from school either the week before or the week after. It was much cheaper and much nicer vacation. Schools didn't like it. What did they do? Put a fine of 60 pounds of parents coming late, right? Bad mistake because now people, instead of saying, look, it's bad to do it. Now they said 60 pounds. I'm going to save a thousand pounds by not going during the crowded time. And so what was that? There's uh, that story about, is it cobras in India? Yes. Yeah, so that story is a bit fishy, but there is a similar story that I think is more grounded in, in reality. And that's, by the way, my, one of my favorite pastimes is to look at the incentives gone bad. I call it stakes and mistakes. So the French came to, to Hanoi, Vietnam today, and they wanted to have sewage because that's what French people uh, wanted to do. With sewage came, you know, they wanted toilets. With sewage came rats. Rats are not nice, and they decided to kill them. And someone really smart came up with, the, with an incentive scheme. Instead of sending my own people, hiring people to do that, let's give the people, power to the people. So they decided to give, say, one cent per rat tail per person, right? So if you bring a rat tail to the city, you'll get 10 cents or one cent, whatever, whatever it was. So you had this poor guy at the city hall that counted rat tails. Great, great example. What can go wrong, right? That's, that's, that's a good, uh, we want you to get rid of them. Well, it turns out, first of all, that you started seeing uh, tailless rats running around the city because why would they kill the rat? If they, we want to have more of them. We want to have more babies. People started to farm them. So you had rat farms. People started bringing rats from other places, right? So you need to be careful. Uh, the idea was good. The implementation was less good. You ask me, are bad incentives worse than no incentive? Yes. <laughs> especially when related to rat tails. Um, yes. What about using incentives to identify problems? That seems like a, a, a pretty big opportunity. Right. So in many cases, we think that we know what's going on, but we don't. I have this uh, paper with my friends in which we we looked at uh, PISA testing. PISA is something that is done by OECD. They In Brussels, they look at many places, many countries, and try to have the same test to everyone and try to evaluate who's best in math, for example. It turns out that the U.S. invests lots of money per student and is ranked somewhere in the mid-30s, not doing very well. And China, for example, Shanghai was number one. Now, the question why and the, the interpretation by everyone is, look, it's because, the, because of the ability. We need to learn from the Chinese. So Finland, for example, is ranked very high. We need to go there and try to understand what they're doing better than us. So the assumption is always that the kids are doing better, that basically what you measure is the ability in, the, in doing math, for example. Now, the way the test is done is they take a bunch of 15-year-old kids, put them in the room for three hours, tell them, look, answer these questions as best as you can. You'll never know the outcome. Your parents will never know. Your teachers, the school, no one will know. Some accountant in Brussels will know. But it's really important that you work on it. I don't know if you can relate to your 15-year-old self. I, you know. I can think about myself that I would have told them, you know, I, I wouldn't work that hard, right? So basically what, what they're measuring is your ability to do math and your willingness to invest effort in the test, right? We wanted to test how important is this second ingredient, your willingness to actually, your intrinsic motivation to do well, if you like. So what we did, we took kids. We didn't tell them what, what we're going to have. Kids in, uh, in the U.S., kids in Shanghai, like I said, number 35 versus number one. In one case, we just gave them a test. We saw similar differences as in the PISA. 
Then we, we pay them per success. So for every question that they got right, they got paid. Now we saw that the Chinese student didn't do better because they were probably already at the top. No matter how much you'll pay me to, to do well in the SAT, I have a limit that I cannot do better than that. Probably that's what happened. The American kids on the other really improved. They, really, they did significantly better when you paid them, which showed that it wasn't just ability. If you don't know, if you sit down and I tell you, I'll pay you more if you'll be successful. If you don't know the math, you can't do better. If I'll take you and uh, ask you to fill up uh, some test in Hebrew, no matter how much I'll pay you, you, you you're going to fail, right? Apparently, they knew the material well enough that when we paid them, they improved drastically. So the U.S. kids, for some reason, if you just ask them to do it, didn't invest. You can think about culture. Maybe in China, it's more of a collective culture in which if I ask you to, to work hard on this, you'll work hard on it, even if you don't get individually rewarded for it. Whereas in the U.S., it's not like that. So the, the diagnostic aspect of this is we thought that it's just ability or people thought that it's just ability. We showed, no, it's ability plus your willingness to invest effort Plus in this. And ruthless American capitalism. Yes. That's, that's what it yes. was. You want me to work, pay me. Precisely. What's the pay to quit strategy? I love this one. So I teach negotiation and I tell my students that no matter what, they shouldn't lie in negotiation. It's bad for ethical reasons. It's bad for your reputation. Just don't lie. With one exception. The one exception is that when you apply for a job, even if you're not excited, you should pretend that you're excited. So imagine that I would come to your podcast and I said, ah, I really want to, to take a nap now. Okay, ask me your questions. No, I need, I need to pretend that I'm excited. I'm really excited, but I need to pretend if not, right? Because otherwise the podcast is going to be much more boring. And the same is true for the job. If you are going to, if you're looking for a job and you say, well, I did, I'm really disappointed that that's where I landed, but you know, I have no other options, I'll come over then I don't want you. I want only people that are excited because otherwise they're not going to do the job well, right? So if I just ask you, say that you work for me and ask you, are you happy? You'll say yes, because otherwise I will fire you or something. But I can devise a way that will be what we call incentive compatible for you to tell the truth. So I can find a way to use incentives to get the truth out of you. And the way is by offering you this pay to quit. Say that I offer you, you know what, if you'll quit, I'll pay you $10,000. No, I'm not going to upset with you. I want you to stay. But if you want to leave, here's $10,000. Let's depart as friends and you can go. Now, if you are you know, on the margin, you want to leave, but you're waiting, you'll take this $10,000. You leave us. You're not going to badmouth us. I don't have to suffer through firing you. Everyone is going to be happy. I lost $10,000, but I gained something that a person who didn't want to work here is not working here. And the people that stay, first of all, I know that they're really motivated. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. And second, they'll have to convince themselves now that they're not stupid, that what they did was not a mistake. If it was a mistake, if, if, if they would have taken the $10,000, they would be better off. If they decide to stay, they really need to justify why it wasn't a mistake to take the $10,000. Right? So they're going to work harder to, to convince themselves that that was a good idea. Otherwise, why would I stay? Mm, there's a little bit so, of so, sort of continuity bias of sunk cost fallacy of opportunity cost, all pushing people forward. Once okay, we've passed this threshold. I need to make sure. Okay, so you, you mentioned there that you do uh, you teach negotiation. Yes. What 
What do most people who've never studied negotiation get wrong about negotiation? There are many things. One of them, so you have a large group of people who just don't negotiate. And it's surprising what is negotiable, right? As long as you do it in a, in a sensible way, many things are negotiable. So it could be when you check into the hotel, you can start and you, you can try and negotiate a better room. You might be surprised, if, you know, what, what you can get or when you rent a car. And it's true later on. So many people just accept what is offered to them or not accept, decide not to take it instead of trying to negotiate them. So if there's one thing that my students take out of the class, if the one thing that they take out of the class is that now they enjoy how to negotiate, that's already a lot. The second thing is like we said about, uh, about uh, creativity and failing. Debrief what happened. So think about what happened, why did it happen, how can I do better in the future? So after each negotiation, try to debrief with yourself, try to learn from your own experience. That's also something really useful that you can take out, that people don't do. What is your favorite strategy from negotiating that uh, seems to convert incredibly well, whether it's a framing of how you say something, whether it's a way to broach a particular topic? Is there something that you think is a long lever when it comes to negotiating? So one, one that pops to mind is imagine that we both, we, we are going to negotiate something. You're trying to sell me a car, you're working in a dealership, you're trying to send me a car, but you're stuck with only yellow cars, right? Or you need to get rid of as many yellow cars as you can. And I'm coming to buy a car from you. Now, in one case, you can tell me, you know what? If you'll buy a yellow car, I'll give you a discount. Now, I might say, no way, I don't want a yellow car. Or I might say, sure, I'll... Or I might say, actually, oh, great, I also want a yellow car. That would be a mistake by me. So if you're telling me, I'll give you a discount if you have a yellow car. I, I should tell you, I shouldn't lie to you, but I should tell you, okay, you want to, yellow, to sell me a yellow car? Let's see what else you can give me in order for me to, to take it, right? So in many cases, we go into this that either we, that likely we want something different and we'll need to compromise somehow. In many cases, we want the same. And if we want the same, I should let you speak first to tell me about your preferences. And then I shouldn't say, oh, great, that's exactly what I want. But I should say, look, okay, if that's what you want, we can, we can, I can work with this. Let's see how, right? So try and get something out of you by doing this without lying, but without revealing the information that we want the same thing. One of my friends that I spent last weekend with in Las Vegas has a method of negotiating that he uses on his wife when he wants to go to a particular restaurant. So give me, give me your thoughts on how effective this is. So let's say that he wants to go to a cheesecake factory. Uh, so he, that's his desire. He doesn't know what she wants to do for the evening, as opposed to saying, I would like to go to cheesecake factory this evening, or where do you want to go for dinner tonight? What he'll say is, would you be opposed to going to cheesecake factory? And she's not going to say like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not opposed to going to cheesecake factory. Maybe there are places that I would prefer to go ahead of that. And he said, well, look, I would quite like to go to cheesecake factory. And if you are not opposed to going to cheesecake factory, that seems like we've got a pretty good setup here. Uh, unfortunately, now that he's talked about it on a podcast, she's become wise to the trick that he was playing on her. So I think that he has sacrificed his restaurant choice for the good of everybody else. But uh, yeah, that's his, that's his negotiation tactic. So a few thoughts about this. First of all, you need to find, 
friends that don't want to go to the Cheesecake Factory. Come on. I'm know, a fan not, of Cheesecake Factory. You, you're not 22 anymore. You know, had such a great podcast. And at the last moment, we had to fall out about Cheesecake Factory. It's an elite establishment. Um, okay. I... Okay. But um, so, so a serious one and uh, a joking one. So uh, the serious uh, thing about this, imagine that you go with, uh, that I go with my wife to a restaurant and a movie. So one way is to find a compromise that will go, I want the Cheesecake Factory. She wants, say, a sushi place, and we end up in Italian place. And with the movie, I want a movie with lots of blood, people killing each other. She wants lots of romantic, and we end up in the middle. That's a mistake. The right thing to do is to find what she cares about more and what I care about more. So it might be that I really care about the restaurant, and she really cares about the movie. So compromising is not necessarily, you shouldn't compromise on each one of the items that you have. Right, so uh, find what who cares more about what, and then try to compromise this way. And the, and the real answer is, you know, I'm with my wife for 34 years now. Just do whatever she wants. That's the that's the easiest thing to to do. When you're talking about worldly wisdom, I think that that is absolutely perfect. Uri Nizi, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to check out the work that you do, where should they go? So my website has all the all the academic uh, work that I have. And if people want, I'm always happy to, to get emails from readers that are interested in some other things and start a conversation, getting Fantastic. feedback. Mixed Signals will be linked in the show notes below. I very much appreciate it. It's super, super easy and accessible to read. I think I love the fact that you integrated flowcharts. You put drawings in there and illustrations and stuff. It's really, really good. And uh, today is the day that the book launches. So congratulations. I know that you've been working hard on it. Thank you. It was lots of fun.